Father God, as we come into your presence, considering your word this morning, in this passage, there is a feast of many things to enjoy. And yet, Lord, we just pray for a portion. Be blessed by a portion of your word this morning to have our, to be able to be more deeply at rest in you on this Lord's day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We closed last week and, and we had moved through the text, text of chapter 15 from the Red Sea to the bitter water at Merah to closing on Elim. And, and Elim, we saw, was this kind of paradise place, this wonderful place after the bitter water of Merah. And yet the bitter water of Merah had been changed by Moses taking that tree and putting that tree in as a filter by which the water would be made clean and good for the people. And then, of course, after that filter, which really is the cross of Christ for us in the New Testament age, um, the desire is for them to basically consider the fact that their whole life is to be filtered through this goodness of the Lord. And yet, they've, they've closed at this paradise kind of setting in Elim as we close chapter 15. And now we begin at Elim once more. And yet, now they are leaving this Elim, this place of 12 pools of still water that the Lord had brought them to, one pool for each of the tribes of lush palm trees surrounded them, a fullness of palm trees, and they are about to go into the wilderness. And as the verse tells us, what's the wilderness's name? The wilderness of sin. And that leads to a question. What is, is that like sin, sin, or what sin is that? Now, the wilderness of sin is an historic place. We don't necessarily know um, how it gets its name. And if you're wondering, Sinai is, uh, has that same root word of sin in it. There are a couple of contenders. Because in this region, the word sin was a very popular thing. For this, the Sumerians and the Mesopotamians uh, that would eventually kind of grow into the Babylonians, uh, the New Babylonian Empire, that, that region of the world, sin was a word for illumination. Sin was illuminating. Boy, what an illustration there. Uh, there's nobody in America advocating that sin is illuminating in our own day. Uh, but um, And actually, they created, they saw sin, and they placed sin upon the moon god. Because the moon god and the moon, they could figure it out. The moon is illuminated. It has, at times it's illuminated, sometimes it isn't, and, and they called that god sin. That's one possible contender. Another possible contender, we know from the Eucharitic people that were the people in Syria, but also Hebrews were very at home saying this, sin can be a reference to clay, or red clay, specifically. And so this 
region could have been kind of named Sin because it had reddish clay. It was a, a place kind of adorned in that. Uh, even Sinai, in, in, in a wooden translation, can mean a mountain of clay or a, a, a red mountain. Or Sin, this wilderness of Sin, could have been named by the Israelites, and it could have been named in remembrance of the fact that here in this wilderness, and by the way, we'll see, Jesus even references this wilderness in his struggle with Satan in the wilderness in the New Testament. We can see that in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. But it could have been that the Hebrews named it the wilderness of sin. And normally I like to give you my preference or where I'm leading on this, but this is just one of those moments I, I, I can honestly say, uh, I couldn't get to the bottom of this, but in this region, it was a loaded word, just like the word football. If I was in London and said, I watched a football game yesterday, they would be thinking I watched what? A soccer game. If I said that in New York City, they would think I watched a college football game or something like that. Or if I was in London and said, oh, you know, I'd really like some chips. What are they going to bring me? French fries. If I said I'd really like a bag of chips downstairs, I might be handed Doritos. Similar, similar realities to this word sin. And yet, here we go. As the people head into the wilderness of sin. And the wilderness very often in Scripture represents danger, temptation, and spiritual adversity. We just covered downstairs a little bit about how Jesus not only went to the wilderness, he went into the deep wilderness. There's an idea here of this wilderness is a true and full wilderness, and the Israelites are going to be tested here. God makes it clear that he's going to test them here in verse 4. And the test and their reactions to this test that God will put before them will show that, unfortunately, sin thrives in the wilderness of sin. And the sin starts as soon as verse 2 in our passage. Now, last week in chapter 15, verse 24, we learned that the people grumbled about the water. But in the Hebrew there, it kind of allowed for the fact that not everybody grumbled. In Exodus 16.2, Moses emphatically makes clear this is an all-encompassing grumbling. And what do the people say? What do they complain and grumble about? They believe they're complaining to Aaron and Moses, but what do they say? They say, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They make the slave rations of Egypt sound like an evening at a Brazilian barbecue like Fogo de Chao. And there are a great many sins in this moment. I could, I could seriously preach multiple sermons on just the number of sins in this moment, the sheer variety of ways you could look at this as an offense to God. But the first thing I want to focus on is that these people have convinced themselves 
that God has absolutely no idea what he is doing in their lives. And that he's no longer to be trusted. And you no longer can feel confident trusting him. He's asleep at the wheel. It's almost like they're saying, of all the gods to give us, you give us this dog, God who's going to starve us to death in the desert. Why can't we go back to Egypt? Those gods seem to be more responsive. It's a great sin, a great offensive sin. And I think we should ask ourselves, how did we get to that point? How did they get to that point? That is so ugly. That is such a, a, a heinous degree of sin. How can people who have been enslaved by Pharaoh get to a point where they would rather run to Pharaoh? They, they think longingly of the life, the previous life they had. They, they speak glowingly of that God, uh, of, of that ruler who believes himself to be God, and they absolutely, utterly ignore the God who's granted them salvation. The God who has uniquely saved them time and time again through this Exodus narrative, doing great things, accomplishing the, the utter miraculous things in order to save them. How do we get to that point? How do we get there? Because this isn't just written to pick on people 3,500 years ago. It's to also speak to us. Tell you how we get there. We get there through worry and fear. Worry and fear. What were their worries and fears in this moment? God's forgotten about me. God's star starving me to death. I'm going to die because I'm being obedient to God. I'm going to die because I'm being obedient to this God. I'd rather go listen to Pharaoh. I'd rather go be a uh, obedient to him because it's, it's better to be a slave and live for a little while longer than to hold fast and hold firm and die of starvation and freedom. And I'm going to say, we've seen an illustration of this in recent history. Because we had our own Egyptian empire. So you know what's not essential? You know what you can give up on? You know what you don't have to go to? You know what you don't need? You're actually loving your neighbor if you don't do this. We all know what they said. And it's in direct con contrast to Exodus 16, it was love my neighbor, stay home, do not go to worship, do not go to God, do not, it's not essential. You've got to listen to DC, you've got to listen to Egypt, you've got to the, be in bondage to us, we'll keep you safe. All the while, you're returning to the yoke of slavery slavery, because you do not trust in the Lord out of worry and fear rather than enjoying the freedom that God gives you. And that's our story. And, and 
And, and when we worry and we fear and we get addicted to the cycle of worry and fear, it is just like the worst drug of sin in the Christian church, in the Christian life, because we, we have reasons for it, right? We can give long oratory sermons on, you don't even have to be a preacher like I am. You can just go on and on and on and on and on about all your worries, all your fears. And you think you might be bringing them to a friend. You think you might be bringing them to a loved one. And that just like the people thought here in verse 2, God says, don't you realize? Don't you realize where that grumbling in this passage is really going to? He's going to make it clear all throughout this passage, especially by the end of verse 9. It is crystal clear your grumbling's actually against me. You're actually complaining about me. You know, Christians aren't Buddhists. Buddhists believe that, if you didn't know, that basically like all sin is linked to fear, like worry or fear. We, we don't say that. But it is a big problem in the church. As I dawn on the precipice of what will be in the Northeast another season of COVID crazy. I still meet with people who for years have been so afraid. So afraid because you might die. So I'm going to, I'm going to do what Egypt tells me to be saved. And I'm not giving them medical advice right now. I'm giving you spiritual advice. And they totally forsake the things that God says, this is important to me. There's no way you can get through chapter 16 of Exodus and not come out of it saying, even the Sabbath is important to God because this passage, even before we get the two tablets, God is saying here as they approach this wilderness of sin, Please, please, at the start, you know what this test is for? It's for your obedience to my law. And, and the test here wasn't like a pass or fail kind of test. In the Hebrew there in verse 4, it's sort of like a hardening. God basically is saying, I'm going to give you things that will harden you, that will make you stronger, that will make you basically be able to work through things uh, of greater difficulty. I'm, I'm, I'm doing that for you. That's the idea of the test here. Cool. Let me catch up to my notes. All right. And so these people, though, are not prepared for it. They're not prepared for the moment because they're addicted to worry. They're addicted to fears. They're addicted to concerns. They're on that, that treadmill. And that worry and fear, it's making a, a mess of their feelings just as it does ours. The worry and fear can make them paranoid. They've, they've decided this God who saved them in amazing ways won't do it again. It's making them utterly irrational towards this God who's done nothing but been patient to, towards them. And an amazing thing happens in this passage. Note the fact that Moses doesn't even go on the people's behalf. God responds with grace even before Moses asks. All through the wilderness, there's going to be times where 
Moses is like, here, I'm here again, God. I, I know they messed up. I know. God doesn't even do it this time. God comes to them. And, and if God was a legalistic God, if, if, if the law came before grace, this is how it would be disciplined. You know, this is, this is how, like, the, the, the knee-jerk reaction of, a, like, a father, speaking as a father of children would be. Until, until you guys stop worrying so much about me feeding you, I'm not going to feed you. So stop worrying about it. Or like the hat I used to wear, I have, I don't know where that hat went. I, that was such a good hat. It's just, it used to say, uh, the beatings will continue until morale improves. Um, but anyways, the, like that's, that's like the legalistic way of thinking. That's not God in this passage. God says, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you. And, and in verse 6 and in verse 12, I found the two times when he says that at the early beginning, heartbreaking, but he says, I'm going to do this so that you know me. You know me. I'm going to feed you in this wilderness of sin with both quail and manna so that you know me. And I, and I got to say, as I was reading that, I'm like, are you kidding me? I don't know God yet. They've been through the Exodus. They've been to the, the Red Sea. They walked through water. They've seen the plagues. They've seen how certain plagues didn't hit them. They said, saw how the plagues devastated the Egyptian empire. They saw how their adversaries were utterly crushed by the waters of judgment. They don't know this God yet. Here is this patient, loving God. And he says, I'm going to do these things so that you know me. And he not only does that, but as we can see in these verses, he also gives his manifestation. He gives us, he shows them his presence. Both day and by night. You could have walked out of your tent and gone, hey God. God by day, pillar of fire by night. He's in their presence as they're going into the wilderness of sin. They're looking at the glory cloud of God. And yet these people in their worry and their fear are basically charging God, God, you don't know what you're doing with my life. They're grumbling about him and they're complaining about him in the guise of pretending it's to someone else. And God's saying, you need to know me better. You need to see me more clearly. You need to understand I'm around you. All around you. And I can hear her heart. We say, but, 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 but God, I'm worried about this. No. No. I wish Jesus made clear in the gospel of Matthew chapter 4. He makes clear, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do we remember that in the wilderness? And then Jesus also says, if you continue on in that temptation by Satan, and this will become even more clear in Exodus 17, 
But Jesus, when he's quoting, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test to Satan, realize that Jesus only quotes half of that verse for us. That verse is found in Deuteronomy 6, 16, and the second half says, as you tested him at Masa. And again, we're going to be at Masa, which is in the wilderness of sin, next week in chapter 17. But what Jesus was saying in part to Satan, 1,500 years roughly after this moment is Satan, I may die of thirst. I may die of starvation. I do not care. I will be faithful in the freedom of the Lord to worship him in spirit and in truth. And the things that entrapped others in the wilderness, the things that others in the wilderness have grown, uh, their worries and fears that they gave into, I will not fall into the same trap. He was a freedom fighter in one sense. And the law, the first law that's mentioned before we get the tablets and signer, that God wants us to be respectful of and pay attention to, is the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. And because we're not yet at Sinai, I will be giving a whole sermon on the Sabbath soon. But I was just seeing that a study of Americans, one of the theologians I was looking at, his comment that about 10 years ago, 80% of American evangelical Christians, 80%, did not think missing church on Sunday was a sin. 80%. And I would guess after COVID, that number grew. Uh, numbers bear that out. And yet here we are at the beginning of a 40-year journey for Israel in the wilderness. A 40-year journey that will be filled with worries and fears. And here is God saying, I'm going to test the strength of your faith, and it's going to have daily obligations. It's going to have daily requirements. And and even on the Sabbath, in one sense, you have a daily requirement. And the requirement was you knew the day before to do the things you needed to do in order that you might rest, you might gather twice. And And so this test is going to test their obedience to God's word. It would have been a discipline. It's a discipline in several ways. Because if you don't wake up early in the morning for the manna, it will disappear. If you take too much, it's going to rot. If you don't remember, the Lord's day is tomorrow. The Sabbath day is tomorrow. The Sabbath day is tomorrow. You're going to go hungry. Because God, in one sense, is regulating these things. It's actually God that's protecting his Sabbath. He's not going to, oh, sorry, God, I forgot. Can can I get some manna? Can I get some? No, there's going to be none of it. And at every morning it's there, and at every evening they're greeted with quail. 
And yet, this won't be the last time they grumble. And the presence of God surrounds them. But this won't be the last time they grumble because we're addicted at times to grumble. I want to speak a little bit about the, the components of the meal. This is an amazing, amazing thing. I, I think one of these things were was miraculous, and one of them was God's providence. I think the quail was God's providence. God just decided in his creation to have this abundance of quail for 40 years, fly in at night and feed the people. That's incredible. It made me think of uh, if you're a student of World War II and, and the uh, Soviets after the war, they tried to barricade West Berlin. And so by land, you could not reach West Berlin. And so what did they do? By land, uh, by, by air, they started the, the world's largest airdrop to feed the people of West Berlin. And it had to carry on for almost a year. And by the close to the end of it, they were giving 12,000 tons of food and goods and material. The Allies, the UK and, and the US, every three minutes, massive planes stuffed with cargo for people of West Berlin were filled. And this was, this was God. Own way of flying in, in one sense, the meal. But also there is the miraculous. Uh, there is the manna. And it's a well-known Bible trivia question. What does manna mean? What is it? First the dew came down and then the manna would come upon it. We know from both the description and in, in their entirety in this chapter and in Numbers, I believe it's chapter 11, that manna became like a wafer-like kind of bread. But also we know from the Hebrew in Numbers 11 that it was kind of this rich, creamy material. So if like Charles Spurgeon was here, he was a great lover of pancakes. He probably would have pictured a pancake. Uh, you know, a Jewish would probably some form of like matzah kind of bread. Uh, I like to picture a honey biscuit, you know, a good like southern biscuit. Uh, but I actually think we're going to finally figure out what this is at the wedding supper of the lamb. I, I want a side dish of manna. I want to try what it tastes like. And then even their eating of this required discipline. You know, Bruce Clydesdale and I, we go out to eat about every week and, you know, occasionally we'll go, oh, we don't want to go. Let's not go there. I ate there last night or let's not go there because of this or I'm going to eat this later. There was a discipline of a steady diet of the same things over and over and over again. And that's a lot to also do, and that has parallels with the Christian line. You know, people always love new and exciting, and they want the Christian life to have new things. You know, what was the church doing that's new and, and all this stuff? And the most successful church in our area, uh, by numeric standards, is the, a church that rests on the Lansdale-Harleysville border that you watch your preacher from a TV screen on. And you know what they preached on all of July? They had a sermon series on the movies. Sermons on Top Gun Maverick. 
I kid you not. Sherman's on Lion. Uh, some movie. I, I, I guess I shouldn't name the movies. I, I haven't watched a lot of movies. I can't. I'm not endorsing those movies. What is TV screen shirt? Love those ideas. Oh, we want to be new. We want variety. We want this one day. We want that another. And here's the word of God, which we march through passages. We march through books. And people go, oh, that's a boring diet. That's a boring diet. Oh, hopefully the sermon will be short. And with me, you know, that's, that's not going to happen. By the way, the Sabbath is the Lord's day. Jesus, in three of the Gospels, makes clear he's the Lord of the Sabbath. It's not the Lord's hour. It's not the Lord's hour and 30 minutes. It's not the Lord's two hours. It's the Lord's day. We need to be careful that we understand these things. We need to be careful because where are we rushing off to when we lead this play? What's something else we want to worship on this Sunday outside these doors? I, there's a degree of temptation, I'm sure, for all of us outside these doors. A few final things on the manna, and this will draw us to a close. The amount was just short of two quarts. It was a, like a milk chug short of two quarts in modern kind of measurements. Everybody got two quarts. My family was there. That means Monica, Bridget gets two quarts. Caitlin gets two quarts. My wife gets two quarts. Audrey gets two quarts. I get two quarts. And this is, I just kept thinking about how amazing this was all week. They all were perfectly filled and full. And I thought that, that was incredible. They're all getting the same amount of food. And yet they're all having their fill. I thought of Monica. I don't want to put one of us on the spot, but one of us out of the two of us eats a little more than the other. I'm not, again, I don't want to embarrass anybody, so I'm not going to say who. One of us has a little bit more of an appetite. And yet here is this manna that if Monica and I were there, we would eat the same amount and have our fill. And I go, how is that? How is that possible? And then I realized it's not really about manna. It's about grace. It's about the grace we need in the wilderness of this world. And whether you've been in this wilderness for decades and decades and decades, or if you've been in this wilderness for basically just a decade, whatever you need God supplies you with grace 
in that moment. This is why Jesus in the Gospel of John in chapter 6 could, could explain that I am the bread of life. Partake of me. Partake of me. Manna is an illustration of the grace that we all receive, no matter how great a debtor or, or a child that, that is just cut short in life. God is good. God supplies all the needs for our household. And that's a wonderful thing. Because I know I need it in the wilderness. And so why are you here this Sunday? Why have you come here this Lord's Day? You realize we're a part of a pattern? We're a part of a pattern that happened on the first Easter Sunday with the apostles Peter and John and others and the early disciples where the Lord came to them and they worshipped him. And they worshipped him on his Lord's day. They worshipped the fact that he became the one who resisted the temptation in life's wilderness for our sin and for our salvation so that he could be the blameless guilt offering and so that his grace could supply us with his daily bread. And every Sunday since, one after the other, people who believe upon him who understand, who have seen the Lord and his salvation, seeing the Lord who comes to us in life's wilderness, seeing the Lord who wants to rescue us from worry and fear, every Sunday for just short of 2,000 years, people have gathered, more and more have gathered in order to praise his name, in order to worship him, in order to just glory in the fact that the love of God so deeply surrounds us that nothing can separate us from the love of God, that even as we walk in the wilderness, that he is a God who has prepared our path and has already gone up ahead of us to prepare a place for us. And so that can set our heart at ease when we fathom his amazing grace, his amazing goodness, his supply. And when we do that, we want to be changed by the discipline of grace. We want to be shaped by grace. And no longer are the things we do, things we do because he's like a Santa Claus God that, you know, we might end up on the naughty list, but we want his grace to shape us. We want his grace to change us. We want to look more like him. And that's why he came to them so gently in this moment. That's why he came to them so graciously in this moment. And that's why he comes to us and so gently. As gentle as a lamb, this roaring lion who can protect us. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that we need not worry in our present time because you are the God who goes before us. You are the God who gives us seasons in our life that further strengthen us. And you also at times give us moments where life goes 
well where we rest along the still waters of the lean and places like it. In all the variety of our walk with you, Lord, though, we thank you that you never leave or forsake us. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning. And now we take a moment after we've heard from your word to confess our sin before you, knowing that you are the Savior who forgives and gives us mercy and bestows us grace. Amen. Let us take a moment to confess our sins before the Lord.